The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about right whales. The right whales are coming to Massachusetts. And the latest, we're going to have an update on the latest on fish stocks. Uh, from across the nation, and finally, we're going to talk about Massachusetts Governor Baker is reducing our public access to transportation, clean water, and clean air, and what a bunch of people are doing about that. So with me again today is Noah Randall, our uh, Ocean River Institute spring intern. Uh, welcome, Noah. Thank you, Rob. Um, so it's a beautiful May day here. It's a, I think it's the finest day we've had all year. It's definitely the hottest. Yeah. <laughs> it's not too, but it's not too humid. It's really pretty nice stuff. Yeah. Um, so what, what's, I hear a lot about right whales. Well, um, you'd know better than I, but <laughs> uh, there have been quite a few right whales off the coast of Massachusetts these days. Um, they've... Uh, there have been between 60 and 80 uh, seen since they started coming up the coast. Um, and well, I think one Wednesday there were about 82 spotted. Yeah. Um, I think so. That was pretty incredible. Large amount. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, we had a report from, uh, I think this is from the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies, that, um, oh, yeah, FB exclusive. Uh, on Wednesday... May 6th, the aerial survey team observed 82 right whales in the south and west of Kitkat Bay. The majority of these animals were skim feeding. They also saw 13 fin whales, 16 humpbacks, 3 minke whales, 2 unidentified baleen whales, and uh, 8 seals and 2 harbor porpoises, 1 basking shark, and 1 unidentified shark. Oh, I didn't even know we got basking sharks up here. Yeah. Um, we, they tend to see the basking sharks outside of Cape Cod, like on the outer shore and in the southwest channel. So that's where you, one would go to find them. But apparently they did. This is from yeah, wow. oh, the pilots were Joe and Trevor uh, on that flyover that, that happened there. Um, but, yeah, let me tell you about why um, I know a little bit about these guys. Because uh, uh, Ryan and I uh, had the pleasure this weekend of bringing a sailboat. Uh, up from Buzzards Bay, we keep it at uh, Mattapoisett, and we, uh, uh, well, there wasn't much wind, so we had to motor through the Cape Cod Canal, and uh, all the way through, every 20, every 
20 minutes or 45 minutes, the, um, the Coast Guard would come on Channel 16 and say, and tell boats to watch out entering the canal, the east end of the canal, the Cape Cod Bay side, because there were right whales right there. They were saying, watch out for right whales, slow down. And uh, so we were pretty excited. Uh, in the canal itself, uh, we had a gray seal swimming around the boat, or not around the boat, but popping up and down off the port side of the boat, um, checking us out or just doing his fishing stuff. He always tended to look at us, though. And then we got out of Cape Cod Bay, and, you know, we come through the, the, the breakwaters there, and it's like, okay, where's the whale? And we didn't see anything, you know. So we figured, well, we'll, we'll head off toward Wellfleet. Um, and sure enough, as we were going along the uh, Sagamore Beach, Sagamore Beach is on both sides of the canal, so that's what they were reporting, but we happened to go the right side to the right, and it turned out to be the right way, and there was a right whale. And uh, we could tell because it was off in the distance, but it showed its tail. And the right whale has a very triangular, clean triangle tail. And the humpback whale, it shows its tail a lot, and its tail looks like a mustache, so it was no doubt that this was a right whale. And and we were sailing along only about three knots because it was a very light wind. And uh, we must have seen uh, six or seven right whales. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool because the uh, whales, the right whales, unlike the, all the other baleen whales I've seen, they don't kind of, they don't wheel through the water, you know, the way. They're surface skimmers. They are. They're surface skimmers. And so they'll have this big boxy nose uh, which is their upper lip, and then they've got these two, yeah, they've got these two bottom lips that come up around it. So you see this boxy thing poking out on the surface, and then literally they'll let their back come up above the water, and then you can see the water being churned where their tail is, so you can really get a sense of the whole animal. Wow. Of course, you can't tell size because of the distance, you know, it's hard to tell. But, um, yeah, they just were remarkable. And then one of them... Um, swam toward the boat, and, and we could see his upper lip coming at us with his two side lips, like um, walls coming up from underneath on either side, um, just toward us, and then he dove and went astern of the boat. Uh, later, uh, about an hour later, we were sailing off to the east, and um, pacing us outside the beach on the port side was uh, a right whale, and he was just feeding along, skimming along, and we were sailing along, and then suddenly he turned toward the right, and it looked like that he was going to, you know, collide. It was time to intersect us at the same time, so I steered the boat off the wind a bit away from the collision course, and the whale moved and set, turned right toward us, swam toward us, and then uh, dove and made himself parallel to our boat so that his right eye could see the hull of the ship. Mm. I didn't see the eyes or anything, but then he took a look at us, and then he just swam off back. Um, he didn't resume the same track. He went more off in the middle of Cape Cod Bay and stuff. But to be looked at by a whale, yeah. was like, holy smoke. No, and this kind of whale, too, you know, there are only, what, 550 individuals left? Yeah, yeah if that, you know, but we know there's like 500, but even that, yeah, yeah. This is the rarest, well, this is one of the rare. this is considered the rare. it's the rarest baleen whale uh, in the world. Yeah. And um, there are some rare toothed whales because they don't, they're, they're in the middle of the ocean, nobody sees them. But uh, these are the whales that were the right ones to kill. 
because they have so much blubber on them that when you harpoon the right whale, it wouldn't sink on you the way that a fin whale, blue whale might. Uh, so it, it was the first whale to be really be, and of course they're right up on the beaches there. So they're very easy targets. Uh, weekend before, Ryan and I went looking for uh, uh, whales along the beach of Provincetown. And we went looked at Marconi Beach, look out on the south, you know, the uh, southwest channel out there, and um, couldn't see anything. And walked along the Wellfleet Shore, didn't see anything. Mm. But um, uh, and the Wellfleet Shore was like calm as glass. So we're going, how can a whale hide here? Uh, we did see fin whales off of not fin whales, but minke whales off of Race Point, feeding right in close. But the uh, the right whales are going to be really hard to see if um, there's any waves out there. Right. If it's flat, then they poke up and stuff. But if it's wavy at all, you don't see them. And their spouts are not as high as the other whales. Mm-hmm. But their spouts, are, they have two spouts. So they have you know, two blowholes on their head. And they literally, you see two spouts coming out. If you're looking at the right angle, if you're perpendicular to the whale, right. then you'll see one spout. But if you can see them head on or back on or something... Uh, and they're the only ones that do that in New England. So there was something else about these whales that I was important yeah. to note. Um, previously, I guess it was like when they made the five-year plan, or the plan five years ago, the management plan, um, they had recognized that sort of more towards the east part of the bay um, was the right whale critical habitat. But now uh, it seems that the whales have been much more on the eastern coast. Right, by the canal mouth. Right. Yeah, yeah. We were hearing that uh, at Manomet Point, and the people were out there up in the high bluffs of Plymouth looking out, where they could see whales there and stuff. And so, yeah, yeah the, whole, the whole cluster of sightings has moved west. And, uh, yeah, as you said, last spring we had a, a regional planning ocean meeting uh, here at the Charles Hotel, and... Um, much like the one that you and I went to uh, last couple months ago up in Portland, Portsmouth, no, Durham, New Hampshire. Um, but at that one, they had spent a year gathering data and put up on the wall, you know, on the screen, this beautiful chart of Cape Cod Bay and the right side, the eastern side of the bay, was all red, you know, a little red coming around top of Race Point and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at that and saying, well, there's your national marine sanctuary. You know, that's the critical habitat of the right whale. And that will protect. Yeah. And now, they're on the other side. So thank goodness. This is what's so frustrating about ocean planning and ocean management is that, you know, you put all this research in to figure out where things are. And, and then they move. And then they're not there. <laughs> they move. We're not looking at rocks, you know. It doesn't take like yeah. millions and millions of years for them to no, the direction. No, you know, if they were carrots, they'd stay where you put them, you know. But uh, <laughs> yeah, and and nobody knows why. I mean, it's not that different the ecology of the east side and the west side, you know, from year to year. Um, it, yeah, so it, it makes for the management to be really tricky, mm. and. Uh, yeah, we were um, just um, talking with my colleagues in Washington uh, and, and around the country of the Greater Oceans Coalition and we, uh, our Great Waters Coalition. Uh, we uh, are celebrating five years of national ocean policy. So it's been five years since um, 
executive order by President Obama, and he put Pierre Bratt in charge of of um, coordinating planning, not making decisions, but the planning. And a lot has happened since then. Uh, and we've talked about it in the past. And if people want to know more about um, what's all of the accomplishments, I invite you to go to the Ocean River Institute's website um, and and look up uh, National Ocean Policy, and you'll see that the uh, the posting on our um, on the blog about some of the high points of accomplishments that have happened in those five years. Um, uh, Beth, uh, they put out a five-year report, and, and so I just picked out a few of the things, but um, Beth Kurtula, who's the director of the National Ocean Council, um, wrote at the beginning of it, we've made tremendous strides in undertaking our role as responsible stewards of this nation's great oceans. And it's, it's so exciting to see all the different agencies coming together and, and in their own way uh, uh, stewarding our, our, our marine resources and the Great Lakes. Uh, they, the report says that uh, this report on the implementation of the national ocean policy um, is, is, well, it's out. And this is our regional planning ship. It's not only, you know, pointing down the channel, but it's going in the right direction in so many ways, so many different programs. And it's progressing past significant buoy channel markers, uh, you know, like accomplishments on monitoring uh, harmful algal blooms and marine education, uh, the Science Bowl, for example, that you participated in at Cambridge Ringe and stuff. Uh, there's just wonderful things. So, um, again, you know, if you want to hear more about the National Ocean Policies accomplishments, uh, check out our blog, and the blog is titled Implementation of National Ocean Policy. Well, what's happening is that uh, the um, anti-Obama people in, in Washington, legislators, uh, don't like that there's a, a national ocean policy that people are planning together. And so they are trying to uh, stop that by putting into uh, the energy and water bill or maybe the transportation bill uh, these riders to try to unfund and make inoperable the national ocean policy stuff. Program. So, uh, fortunately, people like the Ocean Conservancy, uh, Conservation Law Foundation, are watching these various bills come up because you never know when someone's going to stick a writer in and try to remove that now that um, the Republicans are in a majority in both House and Senate. So, those are things that we're having to be alert on. And, um, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, And also, well, next week, uh, there's a Blue Visions uh, conference in Washington, D.C., so they're inviting ocean advocates uh, to, um, by David Helbarg of, uh, of Blue Visions, I guess, uh, is uh, Blue Frontiers is hosting. We expect about 400 people, and then Wednesday, we will go up on the hill and talk to our legislators and stuff. So that's a great opportunity to reconnect with uh, the legislators about how important ocean issues are, and they're often hidden in different bills and not too obvious. Can anyone who wants to uh, go be part of this Blue Vision Day and walk on the Hill? Absolutely. The, yeah, the Hill Day, anyone can participate. The Blue Visions Conference is a registration fee, but you don't have to pay the fee to come walk the Hill. And so as I've, I've been heading up the New England delegation and uh, calling uh, the New England uh, 
senators and um, mostly Massachusetts congressmen, but a New Hampshire congressman we're going to meet with, uh, Andy Custer in New Hampshire. And uh, I guess that's it for the congressmen. It would be Massachusetts and New Hampshire with my delegation. Uh, but when I set up a meeting with uh, Senator Whitehouse uh, from um, Rhode Island, uh, I got an email from uh, the Sierra Club team members of Hawaii, Doug and Dave, saying, can we come with you to see, you know, Sheldon Whitehouse, you know, because we're not going to see Sheldon. We're going to see uh, his uh, legislative director uh, who's really sharp on these issues and stuff. So, yeah, as the word gets out, I expect other people will want to join up and uh, meet with us when we talk to, you know, Senator Bernie Sanders, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, aides or uh, Sue Collins. Senator Sue Collins has been really good on ocean uh, issues in the last couple of years. She's really stepped up to that role as Republican the way that Olympia Snow did as Republican uh, before she retired. So it's very exciting. It, it, Good uh, Republican ocean champions are hard to come by, and, and, and Senator Collins is remarkably good in that area. Um, yeah, it's just very exciting to go down. And everyone wants to talk about this because they're tired of talking about the economy and war and stuff like that. So it's pretty easy to get the meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're talking about uh, with the right whale sightings. And uh, when we come back after this break, uh, Noah and I are going to talk more about what's the latest on the fish stocks, and are, are we still overfishing all the fish, or is there uh, progress in that direction? Right after this break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. 
To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about light whales and fish. And you can help us save the right whales, save all cetaceans, help us clean up the ocean, uh, and make it a healthier place for all of us to recreate and to eat from and to um, just generally have a good time. And, and what we invite you to join with us at the Ocean River Institute. And our website is www.oceanriver.org. And when you come to our website, um, you'll see all kinds of compelling causes to get involved with. But I do invite you to click on uh, our e-alerts and to subscribe to our e-alerts because when something's happening, we send up the e-alert that uh, alerts people to when uh, action is really, you know, your participation is most wanted on a particular issue. Uh, there's a number of issues where we're going to talk in, this, in the next section after this one about um, some issues in Massachusetts about dismantling of environmental regulations and denying access to public transportation and stuff like that. Uh, so that's a petition that's being wrapped up right now. So it, the way we succeed is that we listen locally and we listen to the legislators in Washington. And when they start to move on an issue, either locally or in Washington, that's when that's the time to speak up and, and be heard and invite others to join with us in uh, responding to these opportunities to uh, have a healthier uh, planet Earth, I guess, you know, starting with the ocean's kind of a big piece of the Earth, isn't it, Noah? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, we're going up rivers and watersheds and so forth. Uh, so please uh, stay tuned or sign up for our e-alerts at www.oceanriver.org. Okay. Um, we just got a report from – Noah's going to give the Noah report is how it works out. Your name is NOA, and the NOAA report is the National Oceanic uh, and Atmospheric Administration. Thank you. <laughs> this is our Ocean Science Bowl champion here, so you're good at these facts. So what are they telling us? So um, there's this big news that overfishing and overfished uh, stock numbers hit all-time lows. So... Um, the management has been working. Yay! <laughs> um, so currently, uh, there are 308 stocks of fish that are have a known status. So, and 26 of those um, are on the overfishing. Are uh, still being overfished. Are still being overfished. Yes. So it's like over 400 fish stocks that fall under NOAA's purview. And of those, you said, yeah. how many do we know about? Uh, they have some numbers on so they know what to expect. That was 300 and something, right? So there are 308 that they know. 308 about. that they have, they have enough knowledge they can tell whether the population is going up or down or right. sideways. And, um, and then... And 26 of those are currently... Only 26. Right. So like 275 are being sustainably fished. Right. Hallelujah. Yeah. And so... Um, but there's been some changes, right? In in some of them moved on the list, and some of them moved off the list. Right. Um, so uh, as in 2013, 
um, 28 were 28 species were on our stocks were on the overfishing list, oh. and now it's 26. So two. Um, so a net gain of two. Right, net gain of two. Um, so on that list, the ones that were removed were the snowy grouper off the South Atlantic coast, albacore off the North Atlantic in the North Atlantic, haddock in the Gulf of Maine, gag grouper in the South Atlantic, the Gulf of Mexico jacks complex and bluefin tuna in the Western Atlantic. So those were all removed from the overfishing list, which means that they're currently being sustainably fished. Um, and the ones that were added to the overfishing list... Well, let's talk about those for a minute, and then we'll come oh, okay. to the added ones. So um, we're using uh, sustainably fished very loosely. Some people say to be sustainably fished has to be local, so there's no transportation expenses, carbon footprinting and stuff. Uh, but we're just saying that if the fishermen meet their objectives of how many fish they're going to take and not take too many, then the stock should survive forever. So those are sustainably fished ones. Right. And uh, I, I love the story of the haddock, you know, where they, they finally got money from Mags and Stevens to study the haddock, and they found that the haddock was swimming with cod and flounder. And when the net started, they observed this, when the net started coming around the fish, the cod and the flounder swam down toward the bottom, and the haddock would go to the side. And so when they observed this, they could adjust the fishing nets and how they fished. Mm-hmm. And so now they've taken it off the overfishing list, the haddock. Right. And what isn't made explicit there is that they also reduced the bycatch of cod and flounder because they were better fishing the haddock because they knew that the cod and flounder were behaving differently. So um, this is why it's really important, and we're working hard in Washington uh, to... Uh, Every 10 years, you get to reauthorize the Magnuson Stevens Fisheries Law. And all we want to do is see more money, not less, go into, uh, into fishery management. So hopefully, it'll, go, it'll all go into research, or it'll go as they see best, figure this stuff out. And uh, so that's our big push at OceanRiver.org is um, to have a strong – so we urge you again to join with us you know, sign up for e-alert so we can tell you when we need your assistance in, uh, because it's hard for the politicians to do that heavy lift of having more money come out of government to programs, not less. So we're going to need an outspoken, uh, we're building an outspoken uh, constituency across the country to, um, to show the politicians that we care about fish and, and we care about, um, and we want them to, uh, enable us to always be able to eat fish guilt-free. Right. I mean, that's really what it's about here is that I want to know that the fish I'm having is um, not threatening the stock. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so those are and, – and so, as you know, our, our program is that we're asking people to help save the fishing and um, fishing communities by, first, eat fish. You know, even though you don't know where the fish is coming from, if you stop at a restaurant and have fish – it encourages the restaurants to serve fish, and that helps the fishermen. Second, uh, ask the fish uh, when you go to buy the fish. Uh, ask the person who's selling you the fish, "What's the local fish?" Try to buy local. Third, try to find out what are the least expensive fish in the market. Those are probably the most abundant ones, and um, therefore you're helping the fishermen. 
he's brought in a catch, and everyone's trying to buy cod, but if you can buy the inexpensive fish, white fish just like cod are very similar, you know, you're helping the fisherman because he's able to sell a catch that's underpriced. And the redfish is an example of that. The redfish has been rebuilt and sold as ocean perch, and now the National Marine Fishery Service and NOAA can't get people to buy enough of that. So the prices are way down, and that's hard on the fishermen. They have to catch more fish to make a living, so you want to support the fishermen by um, buying inexpensive fish. Uh, you do need to warn your family that it's not cod, it's some different fish, because they will notice there's a little bit of a difference, and you don't want them thinking that the codfish has gone off or something, or the haddock. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So also, what is other fish? Um, you have a grouper? Uh, the gag grouper in the South Atlantic. Is oh, that's great. No longer being overfished. Yeah, because that's, you know, up here in Massachusetts, we have cod, all the main uses. Sacramento and Dallas, or they call it scrods. They're not sure if it's going to be cod or haddock or something. But in the southeast, it's all grouper on the main use. And so to know that another grouper is being sustainably fished is, is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what yeah, the other tuna, which is really good. Because... Yeah, now that's a little hard for me to believe, but... Um, yeah. You know, this is the, the largest fish in the, in the, in the ocean Well, it here. says within the Western Atlantic. Yeah. So maybe their numbers there are. Well, we have them that come right here off of Boston. And so we call them the Boston, in Japan, they call them the Boston blue fish uh, because the, the sushi chefs believe that the cold water off Boston marbles the meat more with more fat. So it's the highest grade of tuna is the Boston blue. And the confusing thing is that the bluefin tuna here off of Boston. We see them right in Cape Cod Bay, uh, not this early in the season, but um, I didn't see any of these. Uh, I once out of Provincetown, I was with Stormy Mayo on a whale watch, and um, I thought it was going to be a whale breaching, a whale breathing, and the whole fish came out of the water. And Stormy goes, that's a 500-pound tuna fish right there. So, yeah. <laughs> They're big dudes. And Stormy's dad was Charlie Mayo, the big tuna fisherman. So if Stormy says that's what it is, I, I believe it, because I think Charlie the Tuna was named after Charlie Mayo long ago. But uh, that's another story. Uh, so well, the problem with the tunas are that uh, the ones here off of Boston, uh, some of them are born in the Gulf of Mexico, and some are born in the Mediterranean Ocean. And they mix up right here off of Boston, the Mass Bay. Um, so it's a little scary when the local fisheries are saying, oh, yeah, you know, but apparently um, they're doing the numbers, yeah. and the numbers are that, uh, you know, and there are lots of people out there fishing. They fish with kites. They'll put a kite on their fishing line to keep, I don't know why, but it's to a, yeah, to keep it more vertical away from the boat. So they'll be puttering along with this kite flying off the stern, yeah, like 100 feet up, and, and then they'll be the, somehow connected to a hook. And they managed to pull in the tuna without pulling in the kite. <laughs> I haven't seen them land a, a kited tuna, but uh, yeah, but, but that's very encouraging. I I do not eat bluefin tuna because it, I think it has too much mercury in it because it's high up on the food chain. Right. And um, so I would encourage people to eat smaller fish because they're less expensive and because they're more abundant and because they may be healthier for you. Right. Um. But unfortunately, uh, there were a few boar fish that were that are um, now being overfished, which are the greater amberjack in the Gulf of Mexico, the gray trigger fish, the gray triggerfish in the Gulf of Mexico, 
um, the Puerto Rico Scouts and Corgis Complex and the Puerto Rico Grasses Complex. So we have to work on. So a lot of a lot of those are in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. And um, bummer. What does it mean to be overfished or overfishing? Um, overfishing. Is what we're talking about. You have right. To, you so know. it's when the annual catch rate is too high. So that means that the fishermen are taking in too many fish. Um, okay. So that. For, so yeah. the, the stock won't continue to be at the same. Like, the reproduction rate is lower than the catch rate, so the fish can't reproduce enough to sustain that right. size population. They've done a population model, and they figured that X number of fish can be taken without causing harm. Right. And apparently, they have indications that more than X number of fish were taken. Right. And... Some of that is commercial landing. Some of it could be bycatch. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the summation is that too many fit. Both of those new ones added to the overfishing list, um, too many were landed. Right. And so they'll probably regulate catch less next go-round. Mm-hmm. It takes about three years to reassess each stock. They do each individual, you know, like we said, like 400 stock or 300 and something. Yeah, I think they have a total of... 469 managed socks. Holy smokes, right. So, but the, the ones they're counting, right. it takes them about, you know, they, there are only so many fishery management people, so, that, you know, they can't do them all every year. Right. They, they, they rotate them around, and every three years they, they reassess the uh-huh. population. So that there could be other ones to be added or subtracted, but these are of the cadre of fish stocks that were done in the past, the past 12 months or yeah. something. Um. We can talk about the ones that are being rebuilt as well. Yeah. Um, which is really great. Um, so the fish stocks that were rebuilt are the gag grouper in the Gulf of Mexico, the golden tilefish, and the um, the butterfish in the Gulf of Maine to Cape Hatteras. Oh, great. Yeah. So what does that mean, rebuilt? Um, so rebuilt is... Um, it's a stock, if the stock has been rebuilt, it's one that was previously overfished, um, so the, the, the population, when the population size was too low, and then regulation was put on it so that fishing was, fishing was reduced. Um, and so now the population size has increased to um, what is necessary. Right, so that's some target level that they right. set out Whatever to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so what are the fish again? The gag grouper, golden tilefish, and the butterfish. That's great. Yeah. Really wonderful. Yeah, the butterfish are like herring. They're a small fish, I think, that um, we have here in the Gulf of Maine and south mm-hmm. to, um, and um, that, that's good news indeed because the herring are having a tough time. And, and uh, well, fortunately, they school separately, I guess, so they're, they're not getting one thing rebuilt, whatever. Right. That's great. Yeah. It's really great. And um, so the ones, there are also some that were fish that were overfished, which means their stock was too low, uh, according to the scientist's number, um, and two have been removed from that list. Oh, good. Um, so it went from, yeah, so now six, only 16% are being overfished. Uh, so those are the albacore on the North Atlantic and the gag grouper in the Gulf of Mexico. So this is very confusing, even for me. Right. Because you have overfishing and, over-fish. and overfished. Right. Do you want to tackle that distinction? 
So overfishing is when the annual catch rate is too high, which is what we yes. talked about before. And then if it's overfished, it means the population size is too small. So um, sometimes scientists are saying we should look back like 100 years to see what the population size is then, and that should be our target population size. Or you have to, or some say that we should be considering um, more recent population sizes as a target. But either way, if it's been overfished, that means it's too small and it needs to be rebuilt to a larger population size. Yes. Right. So overfishing is like an annual or three-year cycle thing of how much they're landing and how the population has changed just in that little window. Mm -hmm. And overfished means that the population is smaller than what we'd like it to be. Right. And, um, yeah, uh, because... A lot more fish might be overfished if we've had optimistic levels of what they should be. And overfished doesn't, it's difficult to take into consideration environmental changes, you know, um, increasing pollution or dead zones or anything that could affect, you know, the population that's right. prohibited. So there's a lot of talk about why haven't the codfish rebounded from, you know, after the fishing of them stopped, like in Newfoundland and stuff. And, um, Nobody knows why, but um, it's, it's, there's no point in blaming the fishermen for over, overfishing because they're not fishing at all, and yet the cod remains overfished uh, in, in Newfoundland. Right. It's not back to where it should be. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting, but what, you, what you're finding is that because of all the sacrifices that fishermen are doing to stay within the limits, uh, that there is hope for sustainable fisheries. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely been improvement, and it's only because everybody's been working together to improve fishery management. Yeah, yeah, people are, you know, fishermen are, are watching each other, and they're working collaboratively so that they don't, you know, one doesn't renegade, get out there. You know, this is in American waters, so there's still rampant overfishing in international waters, and that can't be regulated, so that's the whole problem. But here, in within our 200 miles, this is extremely good news. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Noah. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Charlie and the MTA and uh, Needs the Streets of Boston and uh, some environmental regs that are getting undone uh, here in Massachusetts. So uh, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back. And with me is Noah Randall. Hi, Noah. Hi. And uh, we're going to talk, we're going to shift gears from fish and whales to uh, Boston, Massachusetts, where our new governor, Baker, his first name is Charlie, so we have a new Charlie right in the MTA, roughshod and he's the streets of Boston. And uh, we're not too happy about his approach to governing, which is very much of a CEO kind of style, you know, command and control, top-down, you know, the buck stops at him type stuff. And uh, so we've been hustling around the office, uh, especially today. Uh, what's up? What are we doing? <laughs> well, um, we've been, we put out this position, right, to yeah. get people to sign. Um, so there have been approximately 2,154 concerned citizens um, who want more uh, action taken to increase public access to transportation, clean water, and clean air. Yep. So we've gotten people from all over Massachusetts, as well as from all over the country, people who used to live in Massachusetts and um, live somewhere else now, or just other concerned uh, citizens. Yeah. And we've been putting together our petition, as we do, you know, by state and stuff. Right. So we're going to present it with uh, the Massachusetts people first, and then, uh, what is it, Alaska and Alabama, and right. they go up the alphabet and stuff. So it's really cool that so many people around the country care about Massachusetts politics, environment, and transportation. Absolutely. Um, so what we're asking of the governor is that we don't want him to tell agencies to spend their resources reviewing regulations. Uh, he's called for all kinds of agencies, yeah, actually all agencies, to uh, see where their regulations are, there are, reg- there are state regulations that are stricter than the feds, and to throw those up for questioning. Uh, 
and we all think that's very respectful of the state's rights. And the other uh, second part of it is that we don't want the governor to put one person in charge of public transportation. That's the the T and the buses and the trains of Massachusetts. Instead, we want to restore and to restore an independent, diverse, and experienced board of directors uh, that respect the community decision makers instead of bringing in some bright-eyed, bright-idea person from outside, you know, from business circles and stuff. But what happened was that, oh, no, you can tell us what happened. So what's this executive order that... Uh, so um, the governor, Governor Baker, has directed all state agencies uh, to, right, like Rob said, review the regulations. Um, he wants the... Regulations governing the state's water and air quality standards to be sort of dumbed down uh, in addition to the worker safety requirements and the health regulations. Um, so, yeah, essentially do the opposite for what Massachusetts citizens want. Yeah, I mean, this is the dumbing down of, you know, not just environmental regs, but as you said, you know, uh, uh, worker safety requirements, health regulations. Uh, this is going to hurt business that, you know, because businesses that are civic-minded are already are already doing responsible best practices and they, they care about their citizens. You know, like Starbucks is now providing, you know, edu college education support for their employees and stuff. Um, and the businesses that are cutting corners are the ones that get rewarded by, you know, this... Uh, dumbing down of regulations, and, and it's just what businesses want is they just want clarity of what to do, you know, and, and what to count on. And so to suddenly start questioning our practices of decades is um, it's like throwing everything up in the air and it's all going to be, you know, and saying they'll all be good for business if we throw all the regulations up in the air. And uh, Baker only wants regulations that do not, quote, unduly and adversely affect masters, citizens, and customers of the Commonwealth. And to me, it sounds like he's hurting the citizens to help the businesses reach more customers um, who are more out of state, or as much out of state as in state. And, and so that's not good. Um, so that's one side of it. And then the, the other side is that he's moving, uh, uh, is in public transportation. And there, Governor Baker ignored the MBTA during the blizzards of 2015. He gave no respect to the general manager, Jenny uh, Beverly Scott. So she resigned, and then when the MBTA was running again after we got the snow pushed away, um, Baker called for all the members of the independent MBTA board of directors to resign. And uh, this is, you know, this is the behavior of a former CEO on a command and control approach where the buck stops with him, and he's calling for the formation of a financial control board composed entirely of the governor's hand-picked business individual. Um, Fresh ideas and thinking outside of the switch box, in this instance, is not the way to get a transportation system that's struggling more for lack of funds than competencies to get that system back on track again. That's not the way to go about it. You know, the MBTA, it's the oldest American public transportation system, and yet the governor acts as if the right CEO will save the day. He's like, you know, Lee Iacocca or Willy Wonka is going to, you know, but unfortunately... The MBTA, as well as all the state agencies that have to re-examine their rules and stuff, they're all much more complicated with many more uncontrollable factors 
than, say, running a Chrysler or a chocolate factory is. So it's, it's important um, that the governor realize that leading Massachusetts is not the same skill set as directing a company. Great. Um, so let's go to look about the background of um, behind the, these two things. Uh, and, and, you know, tell us a little more about our environmental uh, legacy of stewardship. Yeah. Um, so in Massachusetts, we have the Global Warming Solutions Act and the Massachusetts Ocean Planning Act. And these are really acts that have been created to... Um, to help with environmental stewardship uh, regulations. And um, Massachusetts has been the nation's trailblazer for this. We've, you know, we have all these um, marine protected areas and a lot of other um, environmental changes that have been made here that have inspired changes um, in other parts of the country as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, there was this complicated uh, Supreme Court decision of Massachusetts versus the EPA and the state sovereignty with environmental justice was recognized for everybody. And uh, I found this quote in the regulation that says, quote, in that capacity, the state has an interest independent of and behind the titles of its citizens in all the earth and air within its domain. It has the last word as to whether its mountains shall be stripped of their forest and its inhabitants shall breathe pure air. So this was a Supreme Court writing in a case that determined the excessive, that excessive carbon in the atmosphere is a harmful pollutant. And this is the case, and, and that, has to be, that the carbon has to be regulated by the EPA because it's in excess, and this is the case that figured that out. And it's also the case that gave the EPA the authority to regulate tailpipe emissions of greenhouse gases out of our automobiles and trucks and transportation mm -hmm. systems. Um, so we are, the, the idea of making Massachusetts as dumb as the federal standard is, you know, there's just a law, I guess, that the more people you bring together, the lower the collective intelligence comes, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of a, you know, um, and, um, and this is not good for Massachusetts. And nor do, you know, there's, uh, the governor is dealing with, you know, a large budget with limited resources, and so he's looking for cutbacks. And as a result, everybody is doing more than their job calls for. And to then layer on this additional request that they um, review the legislation, uh, rules and regs and stuff, is just making it harder to do the day-to-day -day work of, of government. And so that's not good. No. Uh, and then on the MBTA side, um, it's just remarkable to me that the governor doesn't respect the decades of experience and knowledge that has been gathered by the people who are leading the transportation system. You know, it's just, it just surprises me that he thinks he can just bring in new business people and they know finance, but you got to know more than finance. you got to know, you know, what makes the train tracks connect together and what, you know, the, all the complexities of running a railroad or running a bus system or, and then interlacing all those things. It's just, 
you know, it's not like a widget factory. And uh, yet, you know, that seems to be the way Baker's acting, that, you know, the right CEO will just save the day. And so like, you know, Lee Iacocco of um, Chrysler or Willy Wonka with his chocolate factory, if they just do it right, it'll all fall into place. And uh, you gotta you got to walk the shop floor and you got to listen to your people on the floor about what why things are working and not working. Uh, it's the only way to uh, to get people involved. And with the MBTA, they, there's a lot of um, absenteeism. And a good manager knows that the absenteeism is either a sign of, or probably both, that your people are being overworked um, and they're dispirited. And so those are both of those are signs that uh, the system is chafing against the workers and the it's not a question of their competency. It's a question of, uh, and we know that the uh, MBTA is, is way underfunded, and, and so it comes as no surprise, and, and so now we're just, you know, to shoot the managers is not the right approach. Uh, when a train switch box does not work well, uh, directives by people thinking outside of the box is no more likely to solve the problem than are 100 monkeys at typewriters likely to write Shakespeare. So we want the governor to respect the engineer and listen to experience. So that's the goal of our petition, and we'll be bringing it up to the governor's office uh, Friday morning, tomorrow morning. And um, it's been really cool about the different comments. We're really out of time, but people from all over, from um, North Carolina and Las Vegas and New York and, and Maine, uh, have taken the time to, writ to write things about how they were born Two people wrote from North Carolina saying how they were born and raised in Massachusetts or a resident for 30 years, and it's been really difficult for them to live in a state that doesn't have the regulations that we have in Massachusetts and how much they would like to have that come back. Uh, people from Nevada and elsewhere saying, you know, Massachusetts, we count on you for being the leader in so many of these things. Uh, but we're really out of time. Noah, thank you for um, being on the show again. Thank you, Rob. It's always a pleasure to talk about what's going on here and why people should care. Yes, people, please visit oceanriver.org. <laughs> we want you to be involved with us. You can write to us at info at oceanriver.org, um, and info goes to a bunch of us, and so we're more likely to get a quicker response. Um, but please, um, thank you for listening and for spreading the word that people working, working together uh, can really make a difference for things as small as a subway in Boston or as large as the oceans around the world. Thank you once again for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Until next time, stay safe and healthy oceans. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.